The reading is taken from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. To the elders and the flock, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and witness of Christ's sufferings, who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Eleanor. Great. So um, in this second session, since we've talked about bishops already, you can guess where we're going to be going next. Uh, But let me just say, when I first became director of church society over ten years ago now, my then young children were pretty convinced that I had in fact become the king of church society. Um, So that's what they used to tell people I was, the king of church society. I I remember reporting this as an attempt at a joke in my first ever meeting of the Church of England Evangelical Council. And somebody there reminded me that if I was a king, I was certainly a constitutional monarch bound by the votes of the council. And that, of course, is true. I am fully accountable to the Council of Church Society, who hire and fire the director and are always asking me what I'm up to. But just imagine, imagine if I did go round calling myself King of Church Society. Imagine if that is what I had on my business card. That'd be good, wouldn't it? Imagine that I insisted whenever I was giving a talk at a conference, that I was introduced as the king of church society at the beginning of the talk. Imagine if I insisted that all my staff should call me your majesty. How about that, George? Ross? Tony? Works for me. Works for you? Good. Excellent. I might try that then. I might try that. I did actually meet a Nigerian king once at uh, Gafcon a few years ago in Nairobi. Um, It would have been great to compare notes um, and say that I also was a king. But it would also be slightly odd, wouldn't it? I mean, it would be strange. It would be completely inappropriate, really. Titles matter. The names we give to different positions matter. Because it colours how people look at you and what they think your role is. And that's certainly the case when we come to discuss the order of ministry that comes after bishops. Incidentally, we, we've been criticised for in church society for adopting supposedly secular executive titles in church society. This apparently indicates ego inflation and a desire for careerist kudos. I've pondered on that. It niggled away at me, this one. Um, I always listen to that kind of criticism and wonder if there is something that I could learn from it. I considered for a while whether I should change my title to servant of church society or minister of church society so that it was a more ecclesiastical sort of title. Chief slave might work, I thought, for a bit of self-abasement, though it might also sound a bit phony, mightn't it? Which is probably why we didn't go with that. I wondered if perhaps rector would satisfy the critics rather than director. But, you know, the Latin root of those two words is pretty much the same. And rector was also a title used by secular rulers of a city or a state or a a country. My critic uh, had signed his blog post about this as vicar of somewhere or other. A title which means the person who stands in for the rector. I couldn't find that title for a minister in the Bible either, and it didn't seem to fit with my job description. I did briefly consider bishop or overseer of church society, 
thought I could wear a purple shirt, perhaps. But, you know, I didn't want to sound weird or to give myself airs and graces. But I also didn't want people to think I was confusing a parachurch organisation with the church. Because we've got to keep reminding ourselves that those two things are different parachurch organisations and the church. I mean, I just thought director (laughs) expressed what my role actually was. Uh, My critic thought that um, I should be a secretary because my immediate predecessor had that title, though his predecessor had been director, so I don't know if that works. And, you know, I don't take dictation uh, very much or write minutes like a secretary would. And I'm not privy to many secrets like a secretary. And I didn't want to be mistaken for a sectary, which is something quite different. And of course, secretary is actually the title of some of the most important and powerful political leaders, both here in the UK and in the US, not to mention at the UN. So just think of the foreign secretary, the secretary of state, the secretary general. So that would sound like I had very lofty ambitions, actually, to give myself the title secretary. I mean, Stalin was only ever secretary general of the Communist Party, and he managed to do quite a lot of damage with such an apparently lowly title. So, you know, when I've thought about this, and we talked about it on the staff for a while, I've been quite perplexed about what to do. Um, But then I realised that director is actually a scriptural title anyway. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 says, The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honour. That's my case for a pay rise. Um, It's the word for leader in Romans 12, verse 8. It's the word for a manager, as we'll see this evening in 1 Timothy 3, verse 4. It's one who labours and is over other people in the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12. So my conscience has been assuaged somewhat by digging a little more deeply into the Bible itself on this subject. I think I can continue to safely call myself director because it is a biblically recognised sort of role. I would have liked to have been a king or maybe supreme potentate. That would be quite nice too. Um, Now, when we dig into what the Bible says about leadership in the church, we do find all kinds of interesting things that we may not have seen before. But the thing which frequently comes up when we're considering this subject is titles. What are we going to call these people? And how many different roles are there? I want to try and disentangle a few of these things um, as we get into the discussion. But the most important thing, of course, is not necessarily the title, but the role itself. What is such a person supposed to be and to do? Now, the the great medieval theologian Peter Lombard, one of my favourites, 1100 to 1160, thought that ordination was a sacrament. Uh, The current Archbishop of York agrees with him in his more recent book on priesthood. Uh, Lombard thought that there were seven sacraments. He's the one who invented that uh, idea. He likes to have lots of nice, tidy lists of sevens. Um, um, Within this sacrament of holy orders, there are seven ecclesiastical degrees or orders, he said. uh, And they are on the screen there. Doorkeeper, lector, exorcist, acolyte, subdeacon, deacon and priest. Any exorcists amongst us today? No? Uh, In church, you do need somebody to be the janitor, someone to read the Bible out, someone to cast out demons, apparently, somebody to carry the candles in the gospel procession, somebody to help organise the holy things, somebody to serve and assist the priests, and somebody to be priests, to preach and to, as he puts it, confect the sacrament of the altar. Remember, Lombard was right about a lot of things, but also, I think, quite mistaken about a few. 
Now, the pastoral epistles, as they're called, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus in the New Testament, don't speak about sacraments at all. Do they? Have I got that right? I mean, have a look through yourself and see if you can spot any sacraments in 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. They also don't talk about exorcisms or candles, funnily enough. And in fact, they only seem to give us two orders of ministry, overseers, overseers or presbyters, and deacons. Because as Lombard points out, following early church exegetes like Jerome, overseers and presbyters, episcopoi and presbyteroi in the Greek, are actually the same. Their meaning overlaps in scripture. So Lombard says that the diaconate and the presbyterate are the only two sacred orders because those are the ones that the early church had and for which we have apostolic precepts such as in 1 Timothy chapter 3 which is he, he quotes at this point and we'll look at later. Other titles things like bishop or archbishop or pope and so on are not orders of ministry at all in that sense according to Lombard they are dignities or offices that people can hold. He might even have put director of church society in there alongside patriarchs and primates as just the title of a job that can be done by somebody who is ordained into one of these sacred orders. But funny enough, he didn't think about that in the 12th century. In Acts, when we go back to the Bible, we see the apostles appointing elders or presbyters to use that Greek term in all the churches that they plant so remember Paul and Barnabas make disciples in Lystra Iconium and Antioch for example in Acts chapter 14 and after they've been through those towns they then turn around and go back in order to appoint elders in each of those places those churches Timothy would have observed that pattern himself at first hand Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, you remember what happened to me in Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. So Timothy was with him and knew about it. And indeed, Timothy seems himself to have been ordained by a group of presbyters, elders, including Paul. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you, says Paul in 1 Timothy 4.14. And I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. 2 Timothy 1 verse 6. So it seems from that that the church can exist without having presbyters since it's birthed by the living word of God. The apostolic word brings the church into being when people are converted. And yet the apostolic precept is that elders should be appointed for the well-being of the church. This is why I left you in Crete, Paul said to Titus, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. And he says to the Ephesians that the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ gave gifts to his church, and he gave the apostles prophets the evangelists the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ Ephesians chapter 4 as uh, as Stephen Cotterell is fond of saying he says it many times in this book their job the pastors and teachers the elders the presbyters is not to do all the ministry but to make sure that it does get done And this is the same pattern of ordaining elders that we see in the Old Testament as well, where elders were appointed and empowered by God in Israel to govern the people of God under the law of Moses. Exodus 18, Numbers 11, for example. Now, there were, of course, other positions of responsibility and authority in the New Testament. A bunch of people seem to have been appointed to assist Paul in um, his collection for the saints in Jerusalem, if you remember that, in Acts 20. Uh, Prisca, or Priscilla, and Aquila 
are called my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, although they don't seem to have been ordained as presbyters or deacons necessarily, as far as we know, Romans 16 verse 3, not to mention those workers in the Lord, Trophina and Trophosa, uh, as well as Luke and Mark, who were useful to Paul in his ministry, he said, 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 11. But Paul is very clear in the pastoral epistles that Timothy and Titus were to deliberately perpetuate these particular two orders of elder overseers and deacons. In the early church, often it was the oldest or most experienced presbyter who chaired the local council of elder overseers. See that apparently senior position, as Rob uh, alluded to earlier, of James. Uh, for example, in Acts 12, 15, 21, 1 Corinthians 15, 7, and Galatians 2. So that senior figure eventually became known as the overseer, or the elder, not just an overseer, or our bishop. And that's why the, the preface to the Anglican ordinal in the Book of Common Prayer, the services by which we're made, into uh, presbyters is therefore right when it says that it is evident to all men diligently reading holy scripture and ancient authors that from the apostles time there have been these orders of ministers in Christ's church bishops priests and deacons which offices were evermore had in such reverend estimation that no man might presume to execute any of them except he were first called, tried, examined, been to Jake, and have known, uh, uh, and is known to have had such qualities as are requisite for the same, as are necessary for this office. And also by public prayer, with the imposition of hands, were approved and admitted thereunto by lawful authority. That's great, it's so clear. The way that the Book of Common Prayer puts it, if you can just get back past the, uh, the V's and I's and now's and the, the dodgy spellings. This acknowledges, you see, that although Peter Lombard was right to see two sacred orders in the pastoral epistles, there had, in effect, been three orders in operation, even in the early church, as we see from Scripture itself and from ancient authors, such as Ignatius. So the Book of Common Prayer is also clear that this is a public office which requires a proper process of calling, examination and appointment. It isn't something that people should simply seize for themselves to set themselves up as ministers. As in the Bible, it should be done with prayer and with the laying on of hands in an orderly and careful way as Article 23 of the 39 Articles also recognises, it is not lawful for any man to take upon him the office of public preaching or ministering the sacraments in the congregation before he be lawfully called and sent to execute the same. He's executing the office, notice, not executing the presbyters. That comes a bit later. Uh, and those we ought to judge lawfully called and sent which be chosen and called to this work by men who have public authority given to them in the congregation to call and send ministers into the Lord's vineyards. So we should note that the Book of Common Prayer here calls these elder overseers by the name of ministers. But also we know, of course, that they also calls them priests. As I said before, titles matter. Minister means a servant, one who ministers or serves, and comes from the same uh, Greek word as that title, deacon, diakonos, which we see in Ephesians 3, verse 7, applied to Paul. He was an apostle, but he's also a deacon, a servant of the churches. And in Ephesians 6, verse 21, it applies to Tychicus, who brought the letter of Ephesians to the Ephesians, Paul's associate. So that's minister. Priest is a difficult word here. It's difficult, I think. In English translations of the Bible, 
It is the title of Old Testament priests who act as mediators and make sacrifices on altars. It is never used for a Christian minister in the New Testament, except Christ himself, who is our great high priest in the book of Hebrews. Christian ministers in the New Testament are presbyters, overseers, deacons, directors, stewards, but never priests. One might think then that that should just settle the matter and should lead us to just abandon the use of such a term for a New Testament minister. We should have done that long ago. However, it's a bit more tricky than that. In terms of its etymology, or you know, the origins of the word, the English word priest represents the Greek word presbyter. You can see they are similar. Priest, presbyter, elder. So in Old English, Anglo-Saxon, the word for presbyter was preost. They had a different word for a pagan or Old Testament sacrificing priest, which was close to the Latin word, sacerdos, sacerd. But over time, that other word fell into disuse and the word preost, or priest, became the word for both a presbyter and a sacerdos, a, a sacrificing priest. So it became an ambiguous term. The same happened in Latin as well, pretty quickly. So that at least by the time of the 4th century, a Christian minister could be referred to as a sacerdos, a priest, just as an Old Testament or a pagan priest, a priest of Zeus, might be. And the ambiguity of these titles was deeply problematic for theological reasons. Because I think the Holy Spirit had good reasons for not using the Old Testament word for priest in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit normally knows what he's doing, doesn't he? Normally has a good reason for the things he's doing. The sacrificial system of the temple had been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus, who, as our great high priest, sacrificed himself on the altar of the cross. We have no further need for sacrifices or altars or of any other priest except Jesus. Because the word priest continued to be used, however, people began over time to see Christian ministry as involving a sacrificial system as well. Must do, mustn't it? They're called priests. The sacrifice of Christ on the altar by a priest, instead of the celebration of the Lord's Supper around a table, administered by an elder overseer or deacon. I say or deacon because in the, uh, in the reform of church law that was proposed in the 16th century, it was envisaged that deacons would, in some circumstances, administer the sacraments, not just the presbyters. And so ministry over time, because of this ambiguity of the title, it started to be seen as sacerdotal, as requiring the theology of transubstantiation and other priestly doctrines, such as the idea that Christian priests are priests in the order of Melchizedek, whose hands should therefore be anointed with oil at their ordination. And so on. Which is quite at odds, really, with the biblical account of what ministry is about. Peter Lombard sums this up, I think. So although he knows that Christ offered himself on the altar of the cross as both priest and victim, he still encouraged this sacerdotal thinking. He laid down various superstitious rules about stones and the anointing of a priest's hands so that he understands he has received the grace to consecrate the sacrament and the giving of a pattern and chalice, you know, the, the cup and the, the plate of uh, bread, uh, ordination to the priest so that he may know, says Lombard, 
Through this, that he has received the power of offering to God placating sacrifices. Sacrifices of propitiation that will turn away God's wrath are offered on that altar by that priest. Related to this idea is the whole thing that the Lord's Supper should be called the Mass. It is deeply connected to this theology. It's often pointed out in some of these books on priesthood that um, it's called Mass because the people are dismissed from the service with the Latin words, ite missa est. Missa, mass, there you are. So we're perhaps meant to conclude that this is just an innocuous term, mass, with no real theological baggage at all. Stephen Cottrell says we should just rejoice and love all the different words that different parts of the church use for the same thing. Uh, he, he just emphasises that it means go. Mass means go, get on with the journey of life and have your rations for the journey, which I think is naive or theologically disingenuous. Lombard tells us why it's called Mass, because it's about the sending of the host, the sacrifice, Missa est hostia, and we are to follow the host which has been sent to heaven. That's what it's about. Or, he says, it could be because the heavenly messenger, Missus, comes to consecrate the Lord's body and through him the host is brought to the heavenly altar. So this is thoroughly integrated into Lombard's medieval theology of priesthood. Mass is a placating sacrifice confected and offered by a sacrificing priest. That is not the same as the Lord's Supper. Titles for a service, for a person performing the service, titles matter. The names we give to things are important. They may become ambiguous for understandable, etymological reasons perhaps, but over time they can acquire a whole world of meaning which can take them further and further and further away from the meaning of the unerring word of God, which is our supreme and sufficient authority in all such matters. During the Reformation, they may have had a more recent memory of Anglo-Saxon words and appreciated the history of the word preost. I can see why they kept the word, even when... They fundamentally altered the theology of ministry at the Reformation. The Protestant Reformed Book of Common Prayer is very different in the way it presents what the priest is doing, even though it doesn't change his title. But that lingering ambiguity has not been remedied by time, as some people naively thought it would be. It has only encouraged the errors of those who would like to move Anglican theology back in a more medieval direction. Uh, the alternative service book by which I was ordained at the start of this century spoke about the ordination of priests, brackets, also called presbyters. I asked my bishop at the time to only refer to me as a presbyter. Uh, it's good that common worship, the, our new services, has retained the memory of this truth as well, and even removed the brackets, so the service is just called the ordination of priests, comma, also called presbyters. It's good. The word presbyters is used several times in the ordination liturgy. So we're moving in the right direction, perhaps, though some ambiguity remains, and we're exhorted by some to embrace that ambiguity as a good thing. Now, it's long been recognised that this state of the ministry has a powerful effect on the state of the church itself, whether for good or for ill. So in the early church, John Chrysostom said, For tell me, whence do you think such great troubles are generated in the churches? Why is a church in such a mess? I, for my part, believe the only source of them to be the inconsiderate and random way in which prelates are chosen and appointed. That is why 
it is so important to have a proper process for the selection of presbyters or prelates, any kind of ecclesiastical dignitary, but also to be clear about what their roles and responsibilities are. In the 16th century, we can see a little bit more about what the Book of Common Prayer was trying to do by looking at the way that the proposed canon law that the reformers came up with um, explains what the liturgy and the articles, the 39 articles, is all about. And so it's quite a good source for our theology of our understanding what, what Cranmer was trying to do. And in the proposed Reformation of Church Law, which uh, he drew up, uh, it says this about the order of presbyters. And it did call them presbyters, not priests. So there was a push in that direction even then. It says, in a presbyter, there shall shine those qualities described by the Lord Paul. That's an interesting way of describing it, isn't it? The Lord Paul in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1. They shall regularly feed the flock of God committed to them with the word of life. And they shall constantly nurture all Christians in an unfeigned or sincere obedience both to God and to the magistrates and to those placed in a higher position of dignity and earnestly encourage them to love one another. They shall not be drunkards, gamblers, fowlers, hunters, hypocrites, sluggards or weaklings, but they shall devote themselves to the study of sacred letters, to the preaching of the word and to prayers to the Lord for the church. Every presbyter shall have his own holy Bible, not only in English, but also in Latin, the scholarly language of the day. His attire shall be decent and sober, as befits a minister, not a soldier, as the bishop shall appoint. I just threw that last bit in there because I know that the Jake Facebook group always lights up when we have discussions about clerical attire. <laughs> I thought you'd love that bit. But note the more important matters. Presbyters are to have the qualities spoken of in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 in the pastoral epistles. That is, godliness and the ability to teach and direct the affairs of the church. They are to preach the word of God and inculcate obedience while being an example of it themselves in their own well-ordered lives. As even medieval canon law, which Cranmer was trying to replace for the mo most part, even medieval canon law said, we straightly enjoin and command that persons, parsons and vicars diligently go about to inform and feed the people committed to them with the word of God, according to the gift given to them, lest they be worthily judged dumb dogs. Because with their wholesome barking, woof, woof, they drive not the spiritual devouring wolf from the Lord's fault. When we turn to the 1662 ordinal, the official gold standard of Anglican doctrine on what ministry is meant to be about, we find no stoles, no hands being anointed, and no priests in the order of Melchizedek, except Christ, who's still alive, isn't he? So we don't need to replace him with another priest in the order of Melchizedek. We find that the ordinands are not given a chalice and a pattern to remind them of their new ability to offer placating sacrifices and handle the physical body and blood of Christ, as Lombard said, though some bishops do want to introduce that into their dioceses, and talk about it in published works. Some are even keen, and show you this on their Facebook pages, to reintroduce the prostration of ordinance, face down in front of the bishop at ordination. Another medieval thing that some would like to bring back. In the Anglican ordinal, however, ordinance are given a Bible. A Bible alone as the infallible and inerrant instrument and authority for their ministry. In the communion service, in the Book of Common Prayer, the Anglican communion service, there is no sacrifice on an altar by a sacrificing priest, but a celebration of the Lord's Supper, which someone who's a presbyter administers 
from the north side of a table, like a servant, because Christ himself is the host of this meal. It is his supper. But this is not the high point of a presbyter's life and ministry, as it would have been in medieval times. The Anglican formularies and the Bible itself do not present the ministry of the elder overseer as revolving round the sacraments in this way, but as being driven by the ministry of the word and prayer. So despite the enthusiasm that some have for finding formulas of ordination which would unite Anglican and Roman Catholic ideas of ministry, I don't think that's a classically Anglican thing to do. You know, when I love reading these obscure things. I was reading medieval canon law uh, recently, and I noticed that it says that twice a year, bishops have to get somebody to read to them their consecration vows, that they may the better remember their promise, the oftener that it sounded in their ears. That's a great idea. Where, where do we volunteer to do that? We should do that. I mean, we should read it out and put it out as a, uh, as a, as a sound cloud thing on the Church ID website. It's a great, I think, structuring... Actually, I thought about structuring this whole talk around the ordinal and what, you know, just reading it out and then commenting on it as we went through to see what it says. Um, the thing is, though, that Andrew Atherston's extremely good book... Uh, the Anglican Ordinal Gospel Priorities for Church of England Ministry um, does that. It's only a thin book. It goes through the Ordinal and the Book of Common Prayer and comments on it uh, to show us what Anglican ministry is meant to be about. Anyone got that? Anyone read that? It is terrific. Who hasn't got that? If you want one, I've got a few. Come and talk to me afterwards. Um, so... Um, I thought I'd probably just end up repeating everything that uh, Andrew Aston said, so I didn't want to do that. But here are some words from that ordinal that have been in every Anglican ordinal since Cranmer, the Archbishop of Cranmer in the, uh, in the Reformation. These are words that have been said to every Anglican priest ever. We now exhort you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you have in remembrance into how weighty an office and charge you are called. That is to say, to be messengers, watchmen and stewards of the Lord. Presbyters are called to be messengers of God, watchmen who look over the horizon and interpret what's coming and warn us about it, and stewards who care for God's people and God's truth. Newer ordinals, uh, ones that are newer than the Book of Common Prayer, and some mm. modern books on this subject, make a big deal about the new things that a priest can do that a deacon can't. Do you remember what those are? Declaring the forgiveness of sins and absolution, presiding at the Eucharist, and announcing God's blessing on things. These things are the gospel itself according to Stephen Cottrell, and the most precious things of the gospel. But I think Graham Tomlin brings a much-needed corrective to that point of view uh, in his book, The Widening Circle uh, on Priesthood. He thinks that evangelism is the most priestly thing that the church, as the royal priesthood in a collective sense, the most priestly thing that we do. Because Paul says... He is a minister of Christ to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Uh, as Graham Tomlin therefore puts it, one of the very few places in the New Testament where priestly activity is explicitly carried out by the church, Romans 15 verse 16 that I just read, or by Christians, is a reference not to the Eucharist, not even to blessing or to absolution, but to evangelism. Mm. Proclaiming the gospel in the power of the Spirit is priestly work, mm. he says. I think, on reflection, I think that what... I think Paul's using a metaphor in Romans 15. 
He's not certainly not saying that New Testament ministers are to be called priests or to make actual sacrifices of Gentiles and offer them to God. It's a metaphor, isn't it? Even if they're unbloody sacrifices, that's not what we're about. But he does nicely express how the blessings that we can bring to the world are particularly to do with the ministry of gospel proclamation, the word. Which, of course, chimes in very nicely with things that we read in 1 Peter chapter 5 that Eleanor began uh, this session with uh, just now, where where Peter exhorts the other elders uh, in, in their ministry and what they're meant to do. Exercising oversight, there's elders and overseers together. Elders exercise oversight, it's the same sort of ministry, not under compulsion but willingly Um, Looking forward to the day when the chief shepherd appears, when we will receive that unfading crown of glory. That's what we're to look to in our ministry as presbyters, those of us who are called to that ministry. Some of us are not. Some of us are called to be laity. Some of us are called to be just deacons in those distinctive ministries in the church, all of which are needed. But presbyters can also look forward to an unfading crown of glory and a reward one day. When I was on my um, pre-ordination retreat, um, before I was made a presbyter, I read the pastoral epistles in Greek and John Chrysostom's book concerning the Christian priesthood, just to do something from church history. And this passage from Chrysostom, which I'm going to finish with now, strikes me as a very good place to end after that thought from Peter about the unfading crown of glory that awaits faithful presbyters. Listen to what old Goldenmouth Chrysostom says. He says, Let therefore the man who undertakes the strain of teaching never give heed to the good opinion of the outside world, nor be dejected in soul on account of such persons, but labouring at his sermons, so that he may please God. For let this alone be his rule and determination in discharging this best kind of workmanship, not acclamation, nor good opinions. If indeed he be praised by men, let him not repudiate their applause. And when his hearers do not offer this, let him not seek it, let him not be grieved. For a sufficient consolation in his labours, and one greater than all, is when he is able to be conscious of arranging and ordering his teaching with a view to pleasing God. Well, may we all be so concerned for the glory of God and the good of our people that we seek his smile alone in all the ministry that we do. Amen. I don't know if we have time for questions. I leave that in the hands of our esteemed chairman for this session. I think we've got loads yeah. of time for questions. Yeah. Do you? Oh, shall I just carry on then? Uh, yeah. No, 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 time for questions. Yeah. Do you have an acceptable list of questions? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I do like that innovation. I might try that next time. Here's some questions you might want to ask me that I have nice pre-prepared answers to. I love it. Yeah, here. Yeah. Sorry. Hello. Really interesting the ethnological history of uh, presbyters and priests and uh, was a sacerdotal but yes. has minister also got any ethnological evolution in the same way? Because ministry and ministers that state relatively common. That's a good point. Uh, that would be worth a study, which I haven't done in any great detail. Though I noticed that minister is also used um, for senior, important, powerful political figures. Minister of State, the Prime Minister. This could be because Christianity has infected our culture in positive and good ways, and that they are ministering and serving Her Majesty the Queen. That's what it's about, isn't it? They're her ministers. We're not electing our Prime Minister, our next Prime Minister. Actually, the Prime Minister is the Queen's first minister. I think there's something of that in it. It could be a sort of Christian influence using that word, or it could just be because it's about serving a king. Does it seem before the Reformation as well? The word minister? Yeah. Yes, certainly. Yeah, absolutely. It's a Bible word, but it's complicated because it's sometimes translated 
Even within the Bible, you would see different translations would translate diakonos in different ways at different times, depending on the context. And it doesn't always refer to a particular order of ministry, you know, the deacons as opposed to the presbyters, which is clear, I think, in 1 Timothy 3, that we look at later. He addresses the elder, the overseers, and then he says, and now for the deacons, you know, it's clear that there's, there's two different orders being spoken of, but Paul himself is a deacon. Tychicus serves and is a deacon to Paul. So it can mean a whole bunch of things. There's Phoebe, who's a deacon of the church in Cancrea. Um, so, you know, it can mean a lot of different things. It's a good question. Have a look at the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, and see what it says about minister. Don't look at the OED. Look at a proper Bible <laughs> <laughs> well, No, if you're interested about the history of the word minister, you don't use the OED to work out what the Bible means by something. I think Ros wants to bring this one to an end. Oh, no. no yeah, well, I've got, no, it's just... I, it's, a, it's a thing which... I know you misspoke, and you don't really think this. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ros. Okay, what did well, I say? Well, I have a question about the sort of underlying thing behind it. Well, you talked about, um, you know, it being envisaged by Cranmer at one point that even deacons might administer sacraments. And obviously, deacons do administer the sacrament of baptism. Yes. Why is it that we have that distinction between the sacraments? that deacons can only administer the sacrament of baptism but not the sacrament of the Eucharist. It's never made any sense to me at all. And I, my fear is that it comes from a theology that says baptism is not very important. Um, I think it's probably the other way around. It comes from a theology that says the Lord's Supper is so important, it must only be in the hands of the priest who's been ordained uh, to do that particular thing. Tom has a, his hand up, so I think he's got a, a yeah, point to make. It's, it's because the... Um, the Eucharist, Lord's Supper, is a site of discipline and therefore belongs mm. to the father of the church family. Mm. That could be one reason. It says in the Reformatio Legum Ecclesiasticarum of 1552, the deacons shall read the daily lessons from the divine word of God to the people, and whenever necessary, they shall preach and administer the sacraments, yeah. plural, as long as they do so with the permission of the bishop or the ordinary. There we are. That never happened, of course, in Anglican um, history. It didn't happen. So a bishop or an ordinary could just go to a deacon and say, oh, yeah, it's fine. And, of course, it would be a similar situation to today where the the priest is busy with one of his other ten churches and so the deacon is permitted and authorised by the bishop in order to go and do the Lord's Supper in in those places. There's not a a theology here of um, reserving the sacraments that's been consecrated by a priest and then taking that because they didn't believe in that. Um, so, yeah. There was an interesting historical reference that I just remember because it did strike me on that issue. Um, I can't remember if Irenaeus or coming into the Council of Nicaea, but there was a particular canon put down to say about the order in which people receive communion because many deacons were receiving it ahead of the bishop and that they decided that because order was order, that you ought to ad- administer the Lord's Supper in the order of the orders. Oh. And so it came, I think it may have been nice, I'll look it up, it's in Martin Davies' book, but it's, um, yes, it, that there was a, a canon put down because the custom of the church hadn't made it a priority issue as to which person would do. But perhaps we should do it in the, other way, in the other order, of the greatest to the least rather than the least. It, as Rob said earlier, yeah. But I do think that's the reason, is that it's not that people, are, that, that that theology is doing down baptism. Oh, it's baptism, so even a deacon could do oh, that. It kind of is. Even women can do baptism in, in, in extremis yeah. because, you know, if the child's going to die, the, the midwife can do it. Oh, that's because baptism isn't that important. No, I mean, the medieval church had this huge, big deal about baptism. I think it's more that it's reserved to the priest because the Lord's yeah. Supper is thought to be so important. Of course, it was the high point of the medieval church. Now, I'm not arguing for diaconal administration of the supper. I'm just saying... Just laying out some of the historical facts. Anyway, you're in charge, Mike. Yeah, Eleanor wanted to come in on this. But just to clarify on that same point, does that mean prior to the Reformation, deacons didn't administer any sacraments at all, and that that's a new Reformation innovation was deacons administering? Um, 
Tom, help yeah. me. I think, have always baptized. I think deacons have always baptised, yeah. But haven't always done communion? No, most definitely not. No, they, they would help the priests in communion. That's one of their roles, to, to help the priests um, order things on the altar in medieval theology. So nothing changed at the Reformation, actually, in this? In, in that sense. So in, at the Reformation, it didn't change that deacons were suddenly allowed to do something in the, with the Lord's Supper. Though it looks like the 32 English reformers who, and foreign reformers who got together to write this proposed canon law were wanting to push a bit in that direction, though Parliament didn't let them do it. Which is interesting, because there are some people today who yeah. like to go in that direction. Steve, you've been wanting to get in. Just um, feel free to kick this out if it's a little bit off piece, but a question following up from your answer, Tom, about the father of you know, discipline at the table. I'm just interested to explore where are the churches that do it exercise discipline at the Lord's table? Well, um, I've only ever once seen it. What did you see? What did you see? I saw somebody who um, was in an active adulterous relationship being declined communion. Right. Um, but I've never, you know, just thinking about forums and you know, the whole thing about what are the, what do you have to, in order to receive the Lord's Supper, what matters in terms of church discipline? You know, I, I never ask somebody have they been baptised, have they been confirmed? Um, if they come to the table, I give them the supper. Um, thinking. And this is this is a thing within our polity which I think is neglected as a yeah. whole. Um, the discipline around both the sacraments really um, uh, within evangelical circles and others so I think it's meant to happen in the exhortations before communion in the book of common prayer for example though in the book of common prayer envisages that those who want to take communion will come and see the priest presbyter the night before and they'll have a talk together about what they're going to do and whether everyone is you know in love and peace with their neighbour and so on and so it, would be, it wouldn't be a sudden surprise on the day. There'd be, you'd have to announce your intention as the priest announces his intention the Sunday before. Next Sunday, we're going to have communion. So I'll be seeing people on Saturday who want to have it. And then at the communion service itself, I mean, you may have done this. I always used to do this when doing BCP communion services. Um, you read out the exhortations before communion where you basically say to people, don't come to the Lord's Supper if you're sleeping with your secretary or you're in a big barney argument with your next door neighbour over that hedge. Don't, don't come. It's dangerous for you because you're eating and drinking condemnation on yourself. And that's what you're meant to do. That's how you fence the table. Now, if they then come, you could literally stop them if you know that they're not indecent with their neighbour. Um, but you should probably have had a prior discussion about that. But I think and the worship doesn't have that, because you have eight days to tell the bishop. Yes, and there is something in, in canon law is very clear about this, that you have to then tell the bishop. Yeah. So it has to be referred to him if you're going to excommunicate someone like that. And it has to be for good reasons, like there's some notorious scandal. So, you know, we know, we saw him coming out of that woman's house last night, you know, or something like that. So we can't give him communion today, and I'm going to tell the bishop why. Yeah. You know, it's got you to be some... But you can't continue to excommunicate if the bishop disagrees, and our bishop's yeah. very, very clear, Tom, so just so you know, and anyone else literally realises, he will never give that permission, so yeah. But the other thing I think you can do, which I think we could make more of than we do, at the, the sign of the peace, which is, you know, every introvert's least favourite part of the <laughs> I think a useful thing could be given there, but what we do is we exchange a sort of token sign of peace with those who are just near us, but also, this is an opportunity, if there is somebody here that you are not at peace with, to go and resolve that before you receive. And, you know, just again, it makes the point to people, there's something to be sorted out. And, you know, a it's very difficult. Okay I think it's generally difficult anyway, fun. but we're in, many of us are English. And I think there is an English reticence to cause a fuss often yes. in, in some of these things. And so we don't like it. And that's why we're in the situation we're in, that all sorts of people can just come, have communion, whether you're baptised or not. Um, it doesn't really matter. No one ever says anything about it. If you refuse someone, that would be terrible. Um, and there's no discipline there. And then there's no discipline over pre presbyters or bishops who actively deny the faith. Um, and some are just told, well, your, your position is, you know, deeply held. You've, you've studied the scriptures deeply. And, you know, who am I to say 
that you shouldn't therefore be disciplined. And we'll be talking a bit more about that at the AGM of Church Society tomorrow. And we'll talk about what Justin Welby said to the Anglican Communion over the summer and what that means for us going forward in the Church of England as to discipline. Will people ever be disciplined? What would I have to do to be kicked out of the presbyterate? To be actively, you know, there are certain moral things I could do. That's easy and obvious and good and right that that should happen. People should be prohibited from ministry for things. But what would I have to preach to get thrown out? I mean, I've heard bishops in the last year or two preaching panentheism, which is an actual, an actual bona fide heresy. And they're still bishops. And I've heard all kinds of things being preached from pulpits and you know, online by bishops, presbyters and so on. And they're never disciplined. What would I actually have to do? to get disciplined. There was a guy called Anthony Freeman who was once disciplined. He, he wrote a book called God With Us, or God In Us, one of those. And um, I remember studying it. We had a university study group. And the thing he said, he says, I do believe in God. And the thing I believe about God is that he doesn't exist. And he was disciplined a bit. He was the DDO last time I looked on Crockford's. But no, he, he was suspended after a year. The year. He was, he was still in post for a year. And then after that, he was removed from order. He was, was he? Only because he wouldn't recant publicly. Okay. It was because he went into print that he got in trouble. Mm. If he hadn't printed it and just preached it, it might have been all right. That's a problem, because that's not what the Bible or the ordinal or any of those medieval or early church people that I quoted foresaw. That's why I deliberately made sure I quoted those medieval and early church people. It is common Christian tradition... It's not just a hot, reformed, prot, Puritan thing to say. It is standard Christian position that we should have discipline, not just in the sacraments, but amongst presbyters and bishops. George, you've been waiting for like 10 minutes now. <laughs> Sorry, George. Two shameless plugs and two reflections. First shameless plug. I've had a number of conversations on this topic with ministers over the last few months. It's something that comes around. It's often a practical issue. The records are there for that kind of thing. Um, so we took the deal with the issue. We just want, we're not, we don't have spiritual authority, but we are a good sounding board. Regional directors of church society, give them a ring, yeah, send them an email. This is a topic that comes up quite a lot. It's, it's just uh, how to do pastoral discipline and how to think through uh, and reflect on it theologically. Now uh, that's lovely to do that. Um, the second shameless plug is the next. Um, Norm webinar is right on this topic. Norm. What's norm, George? Tell us what you mean by norm, George. Network and revitalization ministry. Okay, so these are people who are in contexts where there hasn't been a biblical ministry and they're taking time to build it. And there's lots of things to introduce when you get to that biblical preaching, sermons, longer than five minutes, based on the Bible, that sort of thing. But in the next one, I'm going to propose that you're not just trying to get to a point where you're doing evangelism and preaching the Bible faithfully, but you're doing church in a, in a way that is faithful. And to, th- and to think about this question of how do you exercise good pastoral discipline after the Lord's table and in baptism as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's a lot to say about it. And uh, and, but if you want more depth, I'm going to go there and that next program will come along. Excellent. Two reflections. First reflection is. Um, I've read a lot of Richard Baxter, but he's not the only one, that this uh, idea of this need for pastoral discipline is a foundational argument for reformed discipline. It's where it starts when you think about how do we exercise discipline properly, and it all builds from there why you need an association of pastors, why you need a leader. Of it. So Richard Baxter builds the case for reformed discipline on pastoral discipline, on ha- being able to do it because it's so difficult. His Worcester Association was to deal with pastoral discipline cases. Um, the second observation is, uh, and this is from revitalization ministry, and being in a church that's in you know, churches that are kind of historic, evangelical churches, it, which just ignore it, is it takes a long time to, to get there. But there's a lot more that you can do than we are doing to, to fence the table, to be very encouraging about people, take, it's a, you know, we just don't take advantage of this wonderful moment people have every week, and this is the case we do every week, not every month, to, to just examine themselves before God, think about, you know, 
the Lord sacrificed for them. Uh, are they? I, I don't. I don't do the peace, but I do do the peace. I don't let people go around. I say, you want to have peace with something? You can't sort it out in five minutes. But do not take the Lord's supper until you sort it out. Mm. And if there's a sin in your life, it's between you and the Lord. And I really do labour it. Uh, but to get to the point where you can do that without people being mortally offended, it's years and years and years of building a relationship. Mm. But we can do a lot more, and it'll take a long time, but it's worth starting the journey. That's my second Brilliant. That's so helpful. I think as well, having that, those exhortations in the Book of Common Prayer just before communion, which actually say all those things very clearly, is a help to us, isn't it? Because it says we're not imposing something because we're Puritans or whatever, evangelicals or something. It's in, same in the prayer book. It's Anglican to do this carefully. Well, I'm guessing we've got a lot more that we could keep saying on that, but we should wrap up. So keep that conversation going on over dinner. We're going to sing again now, but before we do, Lee, would you pray for us please yes I would love to we praise and thank you Heavenly Father for the Lord Jesus that he has risen and ascended and that he gives gifts to his church we thank you that he's given pastors and teachers to the church to equip all of us for the work of ministry that we might build ourselves up that the body might be perfect and mature Thank you that you've done that, that you care for the health and soundness of the church. I pray that in our day we would have faithful pastors and teachers, particularly the presbyters amongst us, that they would preach and teach the word of life, the food for our souls, so clearly and boldly and well applied that we might be built up in our faith, rebuked and corrected in our sin and encouraged in righteousness to live for Christ and to be like him in a world that so desperately needs to see that in its lost state. We ask this for the glory of the Lord Jesus, the head of the church, and in his name. Amen. Amen. Amen.